As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Stuart England, The Civil Wars, episode 2.18, The Hostman. At the end of 1643, the residents of London faced a problem. Over the past two generations, they had become dependent on coal to heat their homes and fuel their industry. More specifically, they had become dependent on coal dug up from fields around the River Tyne and delivered through the northern port of Newcastle at the river's mouth. But now, Newcastle was held by royalist troops. No coal shipments had arrived in London for months, and as winter approached, the city was dangerously low on fuel. The poor worried about a cold, possibly fatal winter, while the parliamentary government worried about widespread disorder, or even riots. How had London found itself in this predicament, and could a disaster be avoided? Aside from the immediate fuel crisis in the winter of 1643-1644, coal is a worthy subject of exploration in our larger project here of 17th century English history. In the course of this episode, we'll be touching on some important themes that have popped up before. The uneasy balance between the moral economy and the market economy, the pressure that a rising population put on resources, changes in property rights and land use, and the provision of poor relief. We'll also be touching on some new issues, like public health, climate change, and industrial production, that place 17th century England in a familiar 21st century context. It feels somewhat anachronistic to talk about an energy crisis in the pre-industrial world, but it's a label that seems to fit, both in the immediate term of the winter of 1643-1644, and in the longer-running process in the first half of the 17th century that made London so dependent on coal in the first place. The large-scale shift from wood or charcoal as a primary source of fuel for London households towards coal was related to economic and demographic trends we've encountered before. This podcast has referred several times to the persistent population growth England experienced from the second half of the 16th century well into the 17th. In particular, we focused on the process by which this population growth translated into the conversion of wetlands and forests into arable farmland. Although the landowners who improved the profitability of their property benefited from this process, England's fuel industry suffered a double shock. On the one hand, demand for fuel rose with population growth. But on the other, the conversion of common land into farmland destroyed traditional sources of fuel. As a result, even in a society marked by rampant inflation, the price of firewood shot up incredibly quickly. English society struggled to cope because fuel was more than just another commodity. 
legally and culturally speaking, fuel was treated on par with bread as a necessity of life. Officials referred to shortages of fuel as a dearth, a term usually reserved for food. During a dearth of fuel, the government imposed all the same market controls it used during a dearth of bread, in the name of social stability. Price ceilings were set, and woodmongers were forced by law to bring their goods to market. But much of the firewood industry fell outside the realm of markets. Especially for the poor, the forests and wetlands that were held in common provided a crucial lifeline for fuel. As the energy crisis developed in the first half of the 17th century, these common lands were exploited with increasing desperation. Tighter regulations had to be introduced to govern who could exploit the commons and what methods they could use. Some regions allowed locals to take lops and tops out of the common forest. In other words, only the upper branches of trees, allowing the tree itself to continue growing. Other regions allowed the poor to gather wood by hook or by crook, which meant any dead branches that could be removed by hooked poles or a shepherd's crook. Using any kind of axe or saw was not allowed. Such privileges for the rural poor were matched in towns by fuel subsidies for the poor, or the inclusion of firewood as a part of a laborer's wages. Although it's difficult to quantify the value of these perks and privileges, historians estimate that the supply of fuel comprised a significant but often invisible portion of a poor household's budget. Although these were all traditional privileges for the poor, the first half of the 17th century saw a remarkable rise in the scale of their application. Not since the late medieval period had the fuel reserves of England been under such stress. Back then, it had taken the mass depopulation of the Black Death to ease the pressure. In the aftermath of the plague, demand for firewood dropped, and forests reclaimed abandoned agricultural land. No one was eager to repeat that solution to the problem. But demographic pressure wasn't the only thing putting stress on the fuel industry. Between the 1620s and the 1650s, a sudden period of global cooling further increased the demand for fuel. Historian Jeffrey Parker documents the impact of 17th century climate change in his book Global Crisis. He makes a convincing argument that in a span of 20 or 30 years, a cooler planet sparked simultaneous social and political upheavals in Europe, China, the Middle East, Africa, and the Americas. It's a powerful argument that I've sadly ignored in this podcast, but whether Parker is right to tie political instability to the climate or not, the dropping temperatures certainly played a role in our energy story in this episode. Another historian, Donald Woodward, argues that in this period, English society demonstrated an unprecedented obsession with extracting every last bit of value out of natural resources. From using fish scales as sandpaper to the emergence of wicker chairs as a furniture option, the men and women of the 17th century had to find innovative ways to make do. And nowhere was this trend more obvious than in heating their homes. In fact, Woodward ties the production of wicker chairs in the Fenlands as a response to the rising cost of wood. Every scrap of it was needed for the fireplace. In those same Fenlands, the rising price of wood forced many to turn to burning peat, partially decayed vegetation common in the wetlands. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the exploitation of peat had previously peaked in the period just before the Black Death, centuries ago. Wood was always the preferred fuel, but in times of high population-driven demand, men and women looked for alternatives. In its natural state, peat is but the last thing you'd want to plop in your fireplace. It consists of plant material like moss or shrubbery that mixes with the rich minerals in the wetlands, preventing total decay. As a result, peat retains a tremendous amount of water. Turning it into a usable fuel requires the hard work of digging it up, 
than the patience of letting it dry over the course of a whole summer. A second problem is that peat reserves are non-renewable, or at least they renew at a glacial geological pace. Once a deposit was depleted, it could take thousands of years for any new material to build up again. As the exploitation of peat deposits increased in the 17th century, local officials placed restrictions on how deep diggers were allowed to go. However, for most people in England, the main problem with peat was its concentration around wetlands. That meant most of the country had no access to it. A more widespread alternative to tree energy was gorse or firs. These were small bushes that produced an efficient, clean burn. They had always been a staple of traditional wood gathering, but the early 17th century saw an increase in the systematic planting and cultivation of gorse, especially in woodlands held in common. But although gorse added some much-needed volume to fuel stocks, demand still outstripped supply. With little choice, English men and women increasingly turned to alternatives that previous generations had avoided. Burning straw became more common, but posed a significant fire hazard. In some regions, the poor burned cow dung, to the exasperation of the better off. Not because of the smell, or maybe a little bit because of the smell, but mostly because cow dung better served the kingdom as fertilizer. In many places, officials discouraged its use as fuel, but with little alternative, the poor often ignored them. Most of these alternatives, like digging up peat or more systematically exploiting common forests, were only viable options for rural communities. The growing urban populations of England faced an even greater challenge. Without nearby forests to exploit, the urban consumer relied heavily on the market, and so was hit the hardest by the rise in the price of firewood. And of course, nowhere was the pressure greater than in England's most densely populated urban centre, London. For London, only one alternative to firewood made sense. Coal. The Romans had been the first to systematically exploit England's coal reserves, primarily for smelting iron. After the collapse of Roman rule, the coal industry, like everything else in England, went into a period of decline. But in the later medieval period, coal started to make a comeback. Attentive listeners may be able to guess why. Yes, the rising population and conversion of forests into farmland in the generations before the Black Death forced firewood prices up, making coal an attractive alternative. But attractive may not be the right word. Burning coal produced an unhealthy and obnoxious smoke, so it was only used when firewood was no longer affordable. The early 14th century saw numerous laws and royal proclamations against the use of coal, though these were futile attempts to hold back the tide of economic necessity. In what is becoming a theme, it was the Black Death, rather than legislation, that saved England from the scourge of coal smoke. But in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, after almost 300 years on the margins, coal was back as a household commodity, which no one was happy about. One of the reasons coal was seen as such an unwelcome household guest was that the type of coal London imported was low-grade stuff, mined in the northeast of the kingdom. It produced an abnormal amount of sulfur, and those who used it for industrial purposes complained that it contained more impurities than other kinds of coal. By all accounts, the coal produced in Wales was of a superior quality for both industry and household use. So why, then, was London using this subpar material? The answer has to do with the reason any type of coal was used at all. Cost. The northern coal was cheap, or, more specifically, transporting it was. The vast majority of London's supply came from a few coal fields along the River Tyne, which acted as the county border between Northumberland to the north and Durham to the south. 
This was way up in the northeast of the kingdom, about as far away from London as you could get while still being in England. So the low transport costs had little to do with distance. In fact, the coal fields on the Tyne were much further away than the Welsh deposits. The advantage of the northern coal fields was that they lay right by the riverside. And at the mouth of the River Tyne sat Newcastle, the major trading port in the north of the kingdom. It was relatively easy to dig up the coal, move it downriver to Newcastle, load it onto bulk freighters, sail it down to London, then distribute it within the city. The whole process involved a minimum of overland travel. Moving large amounts of coal, even a mile or two, could raise costs astronomically. And since its low cost was just about the only thing coal had going for it, the only coal that was commercially viable was the kind that could be shipped by sea. It didn't take long for the bigwigs in Newcastle to realize the advantageous position they were in. By the beginning of the 17th century, they had consolidated their grip on the booming coal trade. Back in the middle of the 16th century, Newcastle had exported around 10,000 tons of coal a year. By 1600, that total had jumped to 150,000 tons. Most years in the 1630s, Newcastle doubled that amount, up to 300,000 tons. The majority of it went to London. A small group of influential Newcastle merchants dominated this trade. They were known as the Hostmen, so-called because of their traditional custom of hosting visiting merchants in their homes. For centuries, they had acted as middlemen between local producers along the river and the outsiders who came to Newcastle to buy up goods for transport. Seeking to make the most of the explosion of the coal trade at the end of the 16th century, the Hostmen got better organized. Towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, they began buying up as many coal fields as they could along the Tyne. This was easier than it would have been before the Reformation, when monasteries owned many of the best coal fields. But during the reign of Henry VIII, the monasteries had been dissolved, and the coal fields entered the private market. This real estate campaign culminated in 1600, when Queen Elizabeth granted the hostmen a charter. The document authorized them to run a monopoly on all coal moved along the Tyne. Additionally, the charter effectively made the coal cartel the governing body of Newcastle, granting them the power to select the town's mayor. In exchange, the crown received a tax of one shilling per wagon load of coal. As the coal boom continued through the first decades of the 17th century, the hostmen became powerful regional figures, even powerful enough to stand toe-to-toe with the London oligarchs. Officials in London constantly complained that the hostmen's stranglehold on both coal production and transportation gave them the power to artificially inflate prices. But the hostmen cartel proved resilient. Attempts by competitors to set up rival coal ports nearly all failed. There were attempts to ship out of Sunderland, on the River Ware, just south of Newcastle. But the operation couldn't compete with the decades of infrastructure built up by the hostmen. They had spent years investing in dockyards next to the riverside coal fields and an impressive port facility in Newcastle itself. The hostmen also had the market cornered on the technology and know-how necessary for coal extraction. The 17th century saw innovations in boring and pumping technology, allowing for greater exploitation of hostmen-operated fields. These advantages were jealously guarded by the cartel, and not many Newcastle-based engineers were willing to anger the powers that be by offering their services to the competition. There was money to be made in coal, but barriers to entry were high. Huge outlays of capital would be necessary to set up an independent operation. Most would-be competitors, even wealthy aristocrats who owned coal fields, eventually decided that working through the hostmen was their best option. 
Meanwhile, down in the South, the growing prominence of coal also had an influence on London society and politics. From almost the very moment coal became a prominent feature of the London fuel profile in the Elizabethan era, complaints arose. Although coal was burned for industrial and domestic uses alike, animosities quickly focused on its use in one particular industry, the brewing of beer. Brewery chimneys were conspicuous, in part because of recent changes in what English men and women were drinking. Traditionally, the English produced dark ales. They didn't have much in the way of preservatives, and so tended to be made in small batches, so as to be consumed quickly. But like everything else in the fast-growing city, that was changing. In order to meet the growing demands of the London population, breweries scaled up. They were aided in this by continental immigration. A large number of Dutch, German, and Belgian brewers arrived in London during Elizabeth's reign, many of them Protestant refugees fleeing religious violence in Europe. The beer they brought with them tended to make liberal use of hops, a useful agent in preservation through its ability to inhibit the growth of bacteria after brewing. The English had long resisted the use of hops, at times even banning their use. But London's fast-growing population was thirsty and needed mass-produced booze. In the second half of the 16th century, breweries became larger and larger, and as the 17th century neared, their chimneys puffed out more coal smoke than the wood-based kind. By 1579, Queen Elizabeth had had enough. In response to frequent complaints, as well as a desire to keep royal palaces free of obnoxious smoke, the Privy Council arrested 15 brewers, charging them with illegally burning coal. There were, in fact, laws on the books against the use of coal, but they dated back to the 14th century, the last time coal had been widely used. The brewers, quite reasonably, objected to this application of defunct, centuries-old laws. They pled economic necessity. If they used wood for the furnaces, they'd be run out of business, and London would dry up. Besides, if coal was banned, their businesses would use up all of London's firewood stocks. All that would be left to heat the homes of London would be coal, leaving them with the same problem they started with. After a month of stalemate, the brewers were freed. But the conflict over coal burning continued. Seven years later, Elizabeth's government again battled London's brewers. This time, Crown and business reached a compromise. All breweries close to a royal palace, or the parliamentary complex at Westminster, would use wood. The others could continue using coal. In early modern London, air quality was a luxury. Brewers were singled out for the conspicuous changes in their industry that coincided with the emergence of coal as a major source of fuel in London. But in the 17th century, almost all industries turned to coal. Most did so out of necessity, rather than choice. Drinkers complained that they could taste the sulfur in their beer, and metal workers lamented the inferior iron that coal produced. But burning anything else was simply too expensive, and outpacing all industries combined was the use of coal to heat households. By the time Charles became king, the government no longer had to rely on awkwardly revived medieval laws on coal burning. A generation or two of civil suits had built up a variety of precedents to deal with coal. The major issue with coal, legally speaking, was how to define the obnoxious smoke it produced. Could a man be held responsible for what his coal did after he burned it? Queen Elizabeth had certainly thought so when she arrested those brewers for polluting the air of her royal palaces. Similarly, Charles pursued a legal campaign to keep the skies clear around Westminster and the wealthy West End neighborhood of Covent Garden. Industry, therefore, congregated in the east of the city, where the prevailing winds pushed coal smoke away from wealthy lungs in the west. 
royal pressure exerted in the courts had an inevitable influence in the wider legal system. Borrowing from the arguments of the crown, common law courts began recognizing coal smoke as a nuisance, a somewhat slippery legal term. Roughly speaking, in the context of coal smoke, nuisance was a kind of trespass that caused property damage. When bringing a suit against a neighbor for excessive coal smoke, your case would be strengthened if you could point to some form of material damage, for instance the destruction of documents or stained furnishings. The connection between coal smoke and health was a bit more tenuous, at least as far as the courts were concerned. In 1633, Charles himself established a bit of a precedent, though not necessarily a legally binding one, when he brought four brewers up on charges for burning coal too close to the Palace of Whitehall. Queen Henrietta Maria was far advanced in a pregnancy, and young Prince Charles had recently been ill. The charges against the brewers made specific reference to their coal burning, putting the health of the royal family at risk. The negative health effects of coal smoke were sometimes deployed in civil nuisance suits, though a good lawyer would advise his client to include property damage as well, for the case to be airtight. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Of course, the law wasn't the only way that English men and women understood the detrimental health effects of coal. It was hard to avoid them, breathing London's air every day. The coal from Newcastle released an abnormal amount of sulfur into the air when burned, and evidence suggests that the city's air quality wasn't much better in the 1950s, when modern industrialization was in full swing. The sulfur was especially harmful because in London, the wet climate could turn the coal smoke into sulfuric acid. Chimneys were not usually very high, even for industrial furnaces, so coal smoke usually hung low to the ground. Undoubtedly, the air quality in London contributed to the city's elevated death rate compared to the rest of the kingdom. As we've seen before in this podcast, 17th century understandings of health were quite different from today. Physicians, educated in Latin at universities, used the theory of the four humors to explain human physiology. But most London residents got their medical advice and treatment from apothecaries or other commercial medical providers. These professionals tended to offer advice based on experience, rather than classical theory. It appears that most medical experts agreed that London was not a healthy place, though there was little agreement on what role the air, and in particular coal smoke, played. Humoral theory placed an emphasis on environmental factors affecting the body's internal balance. In other words, like anything else, London's air might be detrimental or beneficial, depending on your internal balance of humors. Though London's air was so obnoxious that physicians rarely found a patient so out of balance that they would be improved by a prolonged stay. The obvious respiratory problems caused by the smoke led the apothecaries to be more uniform in seeing the air as a problem, though they had no coherent theoretical model to explain what was happening. It took a more scientific approach to arrive at any useful conclusions. During Charles's reign, the health effects of living in London drew the interest of William Harvey, a royal physician and personal friend to the king. Harvey had been born in 1578, in Folkestone, on the coast of Kent, about 70 miles from London. 
His father was a small-time farmer who moonlighted as a letter carrier, running the regular route from Folkestone to the big city. Despite these humble beginnings, young Harvey impressed at the local school, eventually earning a scholarship founded by the Archbishop of Canterbury to pay for a promising Kentish boy to study medicine in university. Harvey made the most of this opportunity, and after a few years at Cambridge, landed a spot at the Italian University of Padua, the premier medical school in Europe. When he completed his education as a physician, Harvey returned to England in 1603, just as James was coming to the throne. He settled in London and joined the city's College of Physicians. By the 1620s, he was a prominent member of the college, respected by his peers. He had a regular lecture series at Cambridge and held several important offices within the College of Physicians. One of these was as the college's examiner. Harvey's job was to ensure applicants were well-versed in classical Latin medicine, in particular the work of Galen, the Greek physician who had established the theory of the four humors in the 2nd century. However, while Harvey was ensuring the orthodoxy of new physicians in London, his work in Cambridge was undermining that orthodoxy. Part of the research for his Cambridge lectures involved reconciling centuries-old theory with his own anatomical investigations of animals and cadavers. In particular, Harvey found that hearts did not pump blood the way the humoral theory suggested they should. The standard academic understanding of blood held that food, drink, and other outside forces were absorbed by the body to fuel the production of blood. The heart then pushed that blood throughout the body to be absorbed by body tissue wherever it was needed to provide energy, for instance, to power muscles. But when Harvey observed hearts in action, he noticed that they were pumping a far higher volume of blood than anyone had previously guessed. His conclusion was that the heart was not pumping blood to specific parts of the body as needed, but that the heart moved blood in continuous circulation. Harvey had discovered an important milestone in the understanding of human anatomy. The cycle of absorption and distribution of blood upon which the humoral model depended simply was not happening. If blood was constantly circulating throughout the body, as Harvey claimed, then all the humors would be mixed together. Bloodletting at specific times to release buildups of one humor or another, one of the basic strategies of treatment, would be pointless. In the 1620s, Harvey published his findings, setting off a debate among physicians. Most physicians, committed as they were to the orthodoxy of Galen, challenged Harvey's findings. Though Galileo versus the Catholic Church, this was not. Harvey published in Latin for a narrow audience of learned physicians. And the discussion his work inspired was purely academic. It wasn't that different from many other esoteric disputes that went on at universities. In fact, there's evidence that Harvey continued to follow standard humoral treatments for his own health throughout his life. Neither did the debate harm Harvey's career. He remained an important figure in the College of Physicians, and even received repeated promotions at court. For instance, towards the end of James's reign, Harvey joined the staff of the Royal Physicians as a junior member. Under Charles, he rose to even greater prominence by building a friendship with the king. Charles was curious about Harvey's advancement of medical knowledge, and the king observed several operations on animals, where the physician demonstrated the workings of a beating heart. Harvey also played a role in the education of the royal children. At the outset of the Civil War, Harvey tutored the princes, Charles, aged 12, and James, aged 8, as they joined their father on campaign. During the fighting at Edge Hill, the 64-year-old Harvey famously huddled under a hedge, reading a book, until cannon fire forced him to find a new hiding spot. But the reason we're talking about William Harvey in this episode came a bit earlier, in the 1630s. 
One of the reasons Charles was drawn to Harvey was the king's interest in the curiosities of the natural and ancient world. As we've seen in the past, this is a trait shared by others in the aristocracy. The Duke of Buckingham's agents scoured Europe for the antiquities of the antiquity, and the Earl of Arundel had his own famous collection of oddities. In fact, Arundel and Harvey were friends too. The physician's understanding of the natural world was a boon to these collectors. In 1635, Arundel brought his latest find to London to show off to the king, and also Harvey. Harvey was involved because this relic of a bygone era was still alive. Arundel had found a man named Thomas Parr living on one of his estates, who claimed to have been born in 1483, making him a spry 152 years old. However, the grand demonstration didn't go according to plan. Despite being in fine health in his native Shropshire, Parr fell ill and died soon after his arrival in London. Harvey conducted an autopsy and found that the reports had been true, at least in terms of Parr's health. Harvey declared that the old man had been in fine health and could have lived many more years. What did him in was the London air. Harvey found evidence that Parr's heart had been unable to supply his lungs with enough blood to handle breathing the heavy air of the city, weighed down as it was by coal smoke. Whether it was physicians using the latest medical knowledge, or residents simply trying to breathe, by the middle of the 17th century, it was obvious to everyone that coal made living in London a health risk. Despite this, there was no major move towards any government policy to deal with the public health issues surrounding coal. Both officials and London residents simply treated the obnoxious coal fumes as an unwelcome fact of life. Homes had to be heated, and industries had to keep churning out products. Coal was the only way to do that. It was the miracle product that made London possible, but also made it a miserable place to live. When government officials talked about the coal problem, they weren't thinking of public health. They were focused on the danger of supply interruptions. As a necessity of daily life, only food loomed larger than fuel. And just as bread was the only food capable of sustaining the general population, coal was the only fuel capable of feeding London's furnaces. And as was often the case in commodity markets, a spike in the price of coal harmed the poor more than anyone else. This was a problem for early modern governments, because, as with bread, there was a moral economy operating in parallel to the emerging market economy. Increased prices might be the natural outcome of supply shortages or interruptions in shipping, but only the most absolutist of property rights enthusiasts would be content to stand by and watch the poor suffer. The cynical approach would be to see this as a transactional relationship between the government and the poor. A freezing and bitter population was almost as dangerous as a starving and bitter population. Protecting the poor against sudden rises in fuel prices was a small price to pay to ensure a peaceful and orderly society. The moral economy was about mutual obligation. The poor owed the rich deference and respect. Meanwhile, the rich were obligated to protect the poor. If the rich neglected their obligations, the poor would neglect theirs, and society would break down. In London and the kingdom's other urban centres, that protection came in the form of closely regulated fuel markets, or subsidised fuel. Again, just as with bread, in times of crisis, coal distributors were forced to bring their commodity to market, and to sell it at a price deemed fair. The worshipful company of woodmongers, who distributed fuel in London, were as closely monitored as grain merchants, and deeply resented when coal prices rose. However, the dominant position in the coal trade, occupied by the hostmen of Newcastle, limited the options for the municipal government of London. 
The city authorities could control what went on in London's marketplaces, but Newcastle's collier fleet lived outside their jurisdiction. As a result, there was a perpetual tug-of-war between London, Newcastle, and the central government. Despite coal's cheapness in comparison to firewood, price fluctuations were common. As you might expect, there was a significant seasonal variation in the price of coal. Winter demand pushed the price up, for obvious reasons. But in addition to the cold, London's population grew in the winter months. The wealthy often spent the summer in their country estates, to escape the heat of the city, not to mention chronic outbreaks of the plague. In the winter, they returned, and needed to heat their great houses. Farmers and sailors also spent more time in the city during the winter, as much of their work was done in the summer. The annual price hikes in the winter hit the poor the hardest. Any household that had money in storage space bought up their winter supply of coal months in advance. The poor, who did not have the money to buy coal by the wagon load, and had nowhere to put it if they did, had to buy their fuel piecemeal, which meant increased costs every winter. Seasonal variations in coal prices were at least predictable, though. Unpredictable interruptions of the coal trade posed a much graver threat. And nothing interrupted the flow of coal from Newcastle more than war. During the wars of the 1620s, coal freighters had been particularly vulnerable to Spanish-backed raiders out of Dunkirk. You may recall that at the time, the Duke of Buckingham was harshly criticized for his failure to protect England's shores, that failure even making it into the impeachment charges against him in 1626. The vulnerability of the coal trade was a big part of that complaint. To his credit, Buckingham had tried to solve the problem. There were attempts to arm the colliers with better weapons but they still fared poorly against the nimble Dunkirkers. Buckingham also pushed for a tax on coal, as well as coastal communities, to pay for royal escorts to protect the colliers. These efforts ultimately failed due to popular resistance, though it should be noted that the later ship money project largely developed out of Buckingham's scheme. Protecting English shipping from pirates was the official pretext for ship money, but considering the experience of the coal trade in the 1620s, it may have been, in part, a genuine motivation on the part of the crown. And the memories of 1620s coal shortages may have actually helped ship money gain popular support. It was easy to draw a direct line between guarding England's shores and keeping warm at night. The war posed other problems for the coal trade as well. The numerous war fleets in the 1620s raised the demand for sailors. In order to fill out the crews of its warships, the government turned to impressment, the forced recruitment of sailors. This could be a painstaking process of searching London or coastal towns for idle sailors, so some captains preferred a shortcut. The law allowed them to seize sailors on any inbound English ships and add them to their crew. On several occasions in the 1620s, coal ships waited at the mouth of the Thames rather than come to London when warships were on the prowl for sailors. The effect on the city's coal supply could be dramatic. When the Crown flexed its muscle and ordered the coal traders to bring their supply to market, even Edward Cook, the great opponent of the royal prerogative, approved. The volatile wartime coal trade exacerbated the tensions between London, Newcastle, and the Crown. And things didn't calm down all that much in the 1630s, when peace brought relative stability in coal prices. Consumers had blamed the hostmen of Newcastle, or the woodmongers in London, for the high wartime prices, and accused them of continuing to manipulate prices to their advantage. Meanwhile, Charles incorporated the coal trade into his never-ending search for crown revenue. He tried raising the taxes on coal. He also contemplated extending the monopoly enjoyed by the Newcastle hostmen. 
Currently, they only had a monopoly on the coal trade on the River Tyne. Charles offered them a monopoly on all trade with London, too, in exchange for an increase in their annual fee. The plan was only abandoned after a popular outcry in London against the rise in prices that would follow. Then, of course, war returned in the 1640s to once again threaten the coal trade. But this time it wasn't just shipping that was threatened, but the Golden Goose itself, Newcastle. In 1640, the Scots occupied Newcastle and used their control over the coal trade to exert leverage on Charles. So long as the king was cooperative, the coal flowed. And luckily for the people of London, the king was cooperative. In fact, the looming specter of the Scots cutting the coal supply is a significant part of the story of the first winter of the Long Parliament. Charles bowed to pressure and allowed the impeachment of Thomas Wentworth and William Laud, as well as approving the Triennial Act that winter. All the while, the Scots threatened to cut off London's coal if Charles put up any resistance. In the winter of 1643-1644, where we are now in the narrative, Parliament faced a similar problem. The Earl of Newcastle, the royalist commander in the north, held the all-important port that bore his name. Early in 1643, Parliament had called a halt to all trade with Newcastle. Parliament had no intention of shipping gold to the king, even if it was exchanged for life-giving coal. As the year progressed, however, and Newcastle remained in royalist hands, London got anxious. In May, a special parliamentary committee on the coal trade was forced to concede that alternative sources of coal could not replace the Newcastle trade. Most of the Welsh coal fields were in royalist hands too, and Welsh coal would be ruinously expensive to transport to London anyway. Meanwhile, Scottish deposits did not have the capacity to feed the city. At this point, coal once again enters the background of the great events we've tracked so far. Because, as I'm sure you remember, it was at this time that the pressure to form a Scottish alliance reached its peak. Speed was of the essence. Someone had to capture Newcastle. And since Parliament's armies in the north were too weak, the Scots were London's only hope. This coal anxiety within London helped the war party defeat the peace party in their argument over the Scottish alliance. However, despite the formation of the alliance in August, it was clear by the autumn that Scotland could not be mobilized in time to capture Newcastle before the winter. In October, Parliament took the radical step of authorizing the plunder of all forests owned by royalists within 60 miles of London. The royalist newsbooks denounced this as rank hypocrisy. Parliament claimed to be fighting to protect the sanctity of property rights against a tyrannical king, but here they were flagrantly violating private property on a whim. The result was a desperate, bitter winter in London. Again, an important backdrop to the growing battle between Presbyterians and Independents we tracked last episode. In the end, the city survived the winter, but its ability to do so again next year was in doubt. It was unlikely that the good order of the city, or the unity of Parliament, would hold under the strain of another winter without Newcastle's coal. But Parliament wasn't the only side capable of devolving into warring factions. Next time we'll travel to Oxford and settle in for the same winter months there that we spent in London over the past two episodes. Charles had almost taken London in 1642, and the following year narrowly missed seizing control over most of England's territory. The frustration of coming so close but having little to show for it was starting to wear on the royalists. Several different groups at court were determined to seize control of the royalist war effort and guide the king to total victory in 1644. The winter was court intrigue season at Oxford.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.